0: Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. and bow down before your feet they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth I'm coming soon Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, yet again, we ask that you would speak and that we would hear. You have already spoken in the reading of your word. Would you now speak in the preaching? For Christ's sake, amen. Simple question, probably one that doesn't get asked nearly frequently enough. What's stopping you? <clears throat> what's stopping you? So when somebody goes to complain about something, I want to do such and such and I can't do such. It's a great question to ask. What's stopping you from doing that? What's, what's preventing you from completing whatever you want to complete? From being whoever you wish to be to doing whatever you wish to to do what's stopping you. Now, I know why marriage counselors never ask that question, because you already know what the answer is going to be, right? Them. They're stopping. It's never the truth, rarely the truth. But it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question, particularly when it comes time for somebody who's maybe complaining about something that they shouldn't be complaining about, or complaining about not being able to do something that they should be able to do. Or maybe even better yet, that they're ready to do. I like thinking about that question in terms of even my own spiritual development, your spiritual development. I, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of crazy things in pastoral ministry. I, I do not think I have ever heard a Christian say, I don't want to grow. <clears throat> I want to be miserably immature. <laughs> I want to make my life more difficult because I want to sin more. And therefore, I want God's discipline and I want to be miserable. I don't, I, I've, again, I've heard crazy things. I don't think I've ever heard that crazy thing. I don't think I've ever heard a Christian say, you know, I, I just, I want to be less like God. And so again, it's interesting that we all kind of collectively agree we want to be more mature, we want to be more holy, we want to be more successful as Christians. Yet interestingly, I, I assume most of us probably very rarely ask the question, so what's stopping you? What, what, what's stopping, what's, what's preventing you from growing? What's, what's preventing you from flourishing? What's preventing you? And I don't just simply mean asking that to get the pat answers. You know, pat answer is an answer you don't have to think about. You just kind of recite rotely what you know belongs there. It's in Sunday school. Anytime the Sunday school teacher asks a question, you know the answer is almost always God, Jesus, or Bible. One of the three. I don't mean asking yourself that sort of question for you and just kind of get the the rote answer. Well, what's stopping me? I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I I don't whatever enough. But to ask it seriously and honestly, what's stopping me? Those are questions that we wrestled through, I wrestled through really, really hard about 11 and a half years ago as i started pastoring a church that for some reason couldn't get out of its own way and kept wrecking itself what's stopping us from growing we have people that are deeply committed to the lord jesus we have people that are deeply committed to missions we have people that give aggressively so that there's 18 members and i don't have to work a second job what's stopping us from growing took me a year and a half to figure out oh we have bad leaders we don't have a good leadership team we don't have a good session 18 months later is me and grady by ourselves and then the lord provided tom and eric and others and we've continued to blossom and the lord has changed the leadership and guess what's happened the church has grown I don't mean that in the sense of looking for simple, easy answers that we've never actually genuinely wrestled through, but to ask what's stopping us, seriously, what's stopping us from being the Christians that God's calling us to be? I mean, ask it a different way. I think most Christians would say, I long for revival in the land. I mean, most Christians, I would think, would say, we want Fort Mill to be turned inside out. Of the gospel. What's stopping that from happening? What's what's preventing it? These are going to be important questions when we come to wrestle with the church in Philadelphia because the church in Philadelphia is identical to the church in Smyrna in two ways. John has set this letter up beautifully. It is in this fancy kind of uh, you know, parallel uh, layout of the seven churches. And both Smyrna and Philadelphia are churches that are not rebuked for anything. You have other churches that are rebuked for all kinds of things. You've left your first love, you've corrupted yourself, you've perverted yourself. The next week's a bad one, sorry, don't skip church, it'll still be a, hopefully a good sermon. But in both Smyrna and Philadelphia, you have churches that are praised for being successful. Guys, you've made it. I can't imagine what that would be like to have have been part of those churches to get the letter from Jesus himself. And you go, oh, 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 no, it's our turn. He's talking about us. And what does he say? You guys are doing a great job. All right. (laughs) Fantastic. That's so exciting. I'm so thrilled. until we actually pay attention to what the two things that Smyrna and Philadelphia are praised for. Smyrna is praised because they suffer. You guys have done great. You suffer. Oh, and by the way, it's going to get worse, but I'll still be there with you. (laughs) And it's interesting, if it, we ask that question, well, what's stopping us from, from growing in our Christianity already? We're like, and I'm out. I don't want to grow like that. <laughs> if that's what it means to be holy, I'm not interested. I was listening to a famous preacher the other day. He was talking to seminary students, and he was preparing them for the pastor. And he says, you know what it means to be a pastor? I, I don't agree with this definition, but it was, he was using it for rhetorical opportunity. He said, you know what it means to be a pastor? It means that you're ready to suffer more than anybody else in your congregation. Again, I don't agree with that definition because it's not true. But I do think it was interesting that he's kind of framing out, are are you ready? What's stopping you? Smyrna, they suffer and they suffer terribly. It's awful. It's incredibly difficult. They are bothered with the synagogues of Satan. Interestingly, they show up again in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. A church that doesn't quite suffer the same way, but interestingly are praised for something a little different. Verse 8, I know your works. Jesus, again, the same phrase he said to all the churches. He's the one who walks between the lampstands. He's in and amidst his churches. This is not delivered out of ignorance. It's not something he doesn't know about. He knows the church and he knows their works. And it's interesting that what are the works that he knows for Philadelphia here in verse 8? Well, he immediately jumps into the imagery, the metaphor that we get kind of lost in if we're not careful. I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know That you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Okay, what's going on? Jesus knows their works. And he knows the consequences of salvation in Philadelphia, and it should be everywhere, is aggressive evangelism. That's actually what we're going to end up dealing with throughout the entire context of this letter to Philadelphia is you have a church that while in Smyrna they're suffering in Philadelphia they're sharing. And I don't just mean sharing food with each other, they're sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before them they have set an open door. That's not a door that's designed to go out of <laughs> It's a door designed to be entered into. They have set before them the door leading into the kingdom of God, and it is their task to evangelize their city. No one's able to shut that door. No one has the authority to close off the city of Philadelphia from the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are called to evangelize people in. And the interesting thing is, they've been successful. Not successful per se at actually having people get converted. But they've been successful at at holding forth that witness, at holding forth that good gospel, at holding forth the good message so that you have Jesus even saying, look, I know that you're little. There are not many of you. You don't have great power. When it comes time to look at the strength of the messages that are going out in Philadelphia, if we're talking about just sheer numbers, you guys are so small. You represent such a small percentage of the city of Philadelphia. But even in the midst of that, you haven't denied my name. You've stayed true to the good gospel that God has set before them. This is where this question came back in for me to think through. Of okay, what's stopping us? Because here you have two churches that Jesus praises with no qualifications. There's no reservation in His praise for them. In the first church, He praises because they're suffering terribly. And reality, I don't think any of us want to follow that path. So maybe we'll try to be the second church, right? I personally don't really like walking the path of Smyrna. Maybe we'll try to be the Church of Philadelphia. But instead of, of suffering so terribly, they're those that aggressively are sharing the gospel. And you go, well, mm-hmm. Mm, mm, uh. See, two things the American Church doesn't do well suffering and evangelism. Oh man, rats. And that's where that question kind of came back into my brain and going, okay, for Christ Ridge particularly, for Christ Ridge particularly, what what is it that probably holds some of us back from being more faithful in our evangelism? And again, I I, I love that because not as a pat question, not, not as some sort of silly question that we don't genuinely wrestle through. Because I think, again, to these, every person in this church, we would hear, should we share the faith? And everybody's going to say, well, yeah. And, and we ask the question, are you supposed to be sharing your faith? And I think everybody's going to say, yeah. And, and we even say, well, do we want our church to grow through these evangelistic methods? And everybody's going to say, yeah, again, I don't think of any Christian in this church that's going to go, well, no, I don't want to try. I know I don't want this to happen. <clears throat> and so, again, the immediate answer, and I, I've, I've given this answer probably is my primary answer most of the time, is to say, well, the primary reason we don't evangelize is because we don't know what to say. And I have to be honest, as I've thought more and more about that answer, I don't think it's actually the right answer. And the reason why I say it is because I hear people talk about things they know nothing about all of the time. (laughs) I hear people get excited and ramble about things they have no idea what they're talking about all of the time. I know that because I do it too. It's funny, we're willing to talk about things that we have very little knowledge of, misspeak all over the place. I was like, so that's the cop-out answer. The cop-out answer is, I don't know what to say. <clears throat> All right, so what is actually about what? what is it that's holding us back? And interestingly, I think Jesus, and I, I hope he knows you better than I do. I trust that he does. He's going to give a handful of what I think are probably good solutions, good kind of things to, to meditate on as we go to have a conversation about evangelism and about reaching the lost. First, how he identifies himself. Remember, every letter to the church, he identifies himself in a very specific way that highlights to his people in that place for that problem who he is in a way that is a remedy for it. For the church in Smyrna that was suffering, he highlighted the fact that he was the one who was resurrected from the dead so that even if they suffer to the point of death, they'll still be victorious because he is. But to the church in Philadelphia, he doesn't take the resurrection. He doesn't highlight that. Instead, (laughs) he quotes Isaiah 22. Well, he paraphrases Isaiah 22. Again, out of all the places that you would go to, not the place I would have thought to jump to. But he does. The words of the Holy One. Now, interestingly, Jesus here, this word, the ter- title Holy One is a title that is only applied to God. And it's usually applied to God the Father specifically. He here claims it for himself. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has, here's Isaiah 22, the key of David, one, uh, sorry, who opens and no one will shut who shuts, and no one will opens. And we're going. Well, what on earth does that mean? Why? Why is he claiming the key of David? I mean, we just sang it earlier in the service, and I've sung that hymn for all of my life, and I have no idea what it means. The key of David. I just know it talks about Jesus. Well, interestingly, in Isaiah twenty-two, it talks about Elkiah. I mean, sorry, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. You know, what's going on there? Well, if you had read the larger context of what was happening there in the Isaiah passage, and I didn't take the time for us to do so, what you have is a king steward that's being wicked in the land. And God recognizes this steward's wickedness who's not being faithful with God's kingdom. And so what he does is he takes the authority away from that man and gives all authority to a guy named Eliakim. And as a symbol of that authority, he gives him the key to the city, so to speak. I mean, that's what we have today, right? We've all seen that awful Liberty Mutual commercial where the guy clips the giant key and goes walking off. I hate that commercial, but it gets the point, right? This key of David is a symbol of the authority, not just to the city, but to the very kingdom of David, It's a symbol of the one who would receive all of the promises that were given to David. Remember, he was promised that he would have one that would sit on the throne forever. One who would rule with all authority forever. One who would be the great king forever. And here Jesus says he is the one who has the key. He, He is the one who has the authority. He has all authority. He is the great king of the kingdom of God. And specifically, that authority extends over salvation. So that he's the one who determines who gets to come in, and he's the one who determines who has to stay out. He is the one who is sovereign over salvation. And it's interesting here that as Jesus begins this conversation with Philadelphia about evangelism, he holds kind of two ideas from the very beginning is how big and great and grand Jesus is. He's the holy one. He is the true one. Holding the glories of heaven incarnate in Christ. And that's an amazing thought, isn't it? The incarnation, God stepping inside time and space. What does resurrected Jesus look like, act like, function like? The incarnate Word of God. And did you wonder sometimes maybe this actually might be the bigger issue for the American church or for folks like us is that we actually just don't have very high view of Jesus. I mean, we'll talk about the things that we get excited about. I know you'll do it. I'm going to stand back into the, the door or back at the door at you know twelve fifteen or so, twelve thirty, and I'll hear all of the different things that people are excited about this week. And I'll tell you things I'm excited about. And I do have to wonder sometimes: is it that we just don't we don't we're not successful at evangelism because we're just not excited about Jesus? I mean, I'll tell you all about me because I'm excited about me. Maybe I'm just not excited about Christ. And I remember I said these aren't just the easy answers. These aren't just the, the Sunday school answers. These are the ones that have to actually genuinely make us a little bit uncomfortable to think through. Maybe, just Maybe. We're weak at evangelism because we're weak in believing God is great. Maybe, just maybe, we're weak in evangelism because we don't think he's worth talking about. It's interesting. I mean, we'll talk about each other. right? We'll talk about the Christmas party last night. We'll talk about how much we love each other. I'll talk about how you're great. Do we talk about how God is great? I think it's really comforting the next part that he then couples with it though is that Christ is the one who has the authority over this entire kind of field of study. He's the one who has authority over all of salvation so that we don't have to worry or panic in any aspect throughout the entire conversation. He's the one who has the keys, the authority. He's the one who opens and closes the door of salvation evangelism is ultimately his task. He's the one who's in charge of it, and he is the one who is going to accomplish it. Again, this goes back to that, you know, even the rocks will cry out. He can do whatever he wants to do to accomplish his uh, evangelistic purposes, and he will be successful, and I just want to be a part of that. I want us to be used as a part of that. Maybe we don't want to be used. Maybe we don't trust him. I don't know. That doesn't stop. <clears throat> I think he does acknowledge, and rightly so, that if, if a church does begin to be uh, heavily evangelistic, uh, I think it, it will make enemies. Uh, it, it, it forces, actually, the process because when a church becomes evangelistic, they are calling people to repent. And the problem with that is that you're calling them. And when you do that, they, you're challenging them with the reality that their current situation is not okay. And the problem is, is in America today, we like to, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. You can't tell me that I'm living my life poorly or wrongly, and I can't tell you that you're living your life wrongly or poorly or incorrectly. And the problem is at the very heart of evangelism, that is the reality. is to say there is one way. There is one path. There is one truth and his name is Jesus. It's not a situation where all roads lead to heaven. As long as you walk one and you walk it with fervor and commitment, you'll be all right. That's just not the reality. And so a church that's going to be active in calling people to Join, to to come bow the knee to King Jesus, to see unbelievers transformed and come in, is in some way going to make people angry. Because at its very core, we have to be saying, You're not okay with your life as it stands. You may make more money than you can count. Your third wife may be young and beautiful, but you're not okay apart from Christ. Likewise, if if we're ever in a situation where every visitor that walked through the doors immediately joined the church with no questions or qualms or frustrations, that would set the hackles on the back of my neck up. What are we doing wrong? where nobody ever gets convicted to hear, you know what, you've got to change. And I suspect that's actually probably a little bit bigger of the issue here is that we have maybe drunk from the cultural moment a little bit too aggressively and we're too bought into the idea that we can't tell people they have to change. did you catch it when Perrin was taking her vows a little bit ago? Three of the vows deal with that very issue. (laughs) That when you join the church, you have to change. You can't just stay the same. Should the Lord allow for us to all grow together for the next 50 years, Perrin can't be the same person 50 years from now. That's unacceptable. She has to change. Same way I do. Same way you do. And because we're uncomfortable calling people to change, uncomfortable to to challenge their convictions, I think sometimes we end up being mistaken for the world and therefore don't generate the enemies that Philadelphia does. And they do. Behold, Jesus says in verse 9. In fact, actually, this is a really interesting sentence. Jesus uses the word behold twice in the same sentence. And remember, behold, I don't have the voice to do it. it it's supposed to read like to kind of ah jump off the page and get you. Twice in the same sentence should be kind of a really I need to listen to this. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and they're not, but lie. So I'm going to take those who are claiming to be my people, but are out to get you. In fact, actually interesting, I was reading, providentially just stumbled on this one. uh, Five years prior to this letter being written, the Jews had had an assembly where they had published a statement condemning the heretics and the Christians. It's interesting, the Jews collectively had condemned and the two—the heretics and the Christians and had turned them over to the destruction of their God. Really intriguing. Here, God's going to deal with those of the synagogue of Satan. And in fact, actually, verse the latter half of verse 9, I'm going to make them come and bow down before at your feet and learn uh, that I have loved you. The implication here is probably more likely that he's actually going to destroy the synagogue of Satan through conversion. The implication here, John only uses the word for worship with this uh, positively and willingly. This is most likely not that Jesus is going to take the the church of Philadelphia and kind of lord them over the the synagogues of Satan and rub the synagogue of Satan's nose in it. But instead that he's probably saying, look, you're going to be successful. Go evangelize the people who even think they're Christians and hate you and get angry at you. Because my gospel's big enough for that. I found that to be incredibly encouraging thinking about that for our current situation. Because when we evangelize, what's the problem with doing evangelism in the South? Is that almost everybody says they're a Christian or at least pretends enough? And that in order to do any sort of evangelism, what you end up having to challenge is the version of Christianity that you have held to isn't biblical Christianity. What you think the gospel is, is simply a self-help book from Barnes & Noble. That's why people get angry when conservative Christians begin evangelism in the South. Because they have to hear in some way that the church that I've been going to the, the, the place I've been listening to, the message I've been consuming, it's a synagogue of Satan. It's leading me to hell, not to heaven. And you know what? That, that honestly, I think that, that scares us. I think that's actually probably one of the bigger ones that we don't actually say it. I suspect the reality of the matter is, is that we're not that excited about Jesus and we're unbearably terrified of man. I think those two things, men and women, boys and girls, doesn't matter. I think those two things are probably the great realities for a church like this, right? Conservative church that loves God, that has the gospel right. I know all of you can articulate the gospel because I've heard you do it, right? We've heard you. That's what new member interviews are for. We can vouch for the fact that you can share the gospel because we've listened to you do it. But the reality, I think, is probably that we just don't think highly enough of Christ and we're so afraid of mankind. And the good news is there's a great comfort here that Jesus then offers to the church. Verse 10, because you've been faithful, because you've done this. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the whole earth. This is not the tribulation, or at least the the grammar's not there. Uh, What's here is an idea of either temptation or trial or difficulty. There's a season of, of challenge that's coming. And again, it makes sense to Philadelphia. If you begin to share the faith, guess what? People are going to be upset, and God will sustain you through it. He is your God Be at peace. I have to go fast and I'm sorry, but I'm going to motor quickly. He's going to take care of his people in verse 10, verse 11. The next reality is, guess what? You just be faithful. He's coming back soon. He's not going to be gone forever. You do your job. He'll be back. He will take care of the end. Hold fast. Stay strong to the calling that you've been given. And verse 12, to the one who conquers these faithful people, he will make them a pillar in the temple of God and never will they have to go out of the temple. This is a really important thing for Philadelphia. Philadelphia was inconveniently built right next to a massive volcano. Inconveniently, uh, And it had problems because with this volcano, there were lots of earthquakes, which are very common in this region, and it inconveniently would periodically knock down large parts of the town. In 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake that knocked almost the entire town over, even to the point where the Romans stopped collecting taxes and the emperor started giving them money so they could rebuild the town. The result was that all of the town people, when they rebuilt, all rebuilt way outside of town because nobody wanted to live inside town anymore because that's where the buildings fell on you and you died. Everybody went and lived by themselves far away so nothing could kill them, so they could be safe because when you were in the city, you were in danger. And it's interesting here, God's promise to the church of Philadelphia is you will be in my temple and you'll be there forever. You'll be like a a pillar You won't be able to be knocked over. You won't have to worry about earthquakes. You won't have to go live out in the boonies. You'll be with me and you'll be safe. Because I will protect you. And in fact, actually, not only will you be safe, but you will now have a new identity that I will give you. You'll have my name written on you. You'll have the city of God written on you. You will be My people. He cares for them and blesses them. And I would say this. This church has changed in so many ways in the last 11 and a half years. As I mentioned from the very beginning. I suspect that if we were to fast forward 11 and a half years into the future, this community is going to change even more than the last 11 and a half. With the Panthers moving to Rock Hill, with MLS most likely moving to Rock Hill, I bet you our population triples in the next 11 and a half years. We are going to have more pagans in our proximity than ever before. And again, I know all of you, and we're going to say, we want them to come to church here. Well, what's stopping them? Well, we need to evangelize. That's what we need to do, don't we? And I think probably we maybe need to repent along the way for a low view of Jesus, because he is marvelous. And maybe a high view of man, who's not particularly marvelous And then we'll watch to see how God will care for us and what the mighty God will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the gospel in Jesus. Amen.